Well, good morning, Trinity Church. Good to see you this morning. A lot of visitors here today. A lot of faces I do not know. That's good. Summer is an interesting time. People are out and about, and it is good to see you this morning. It's wonderful to see you. I don't know why you're here. I don't know what caused you or motivated you to be here this morning. Uh, maybe this is the last place in the world you want to be. And you say, well, why, why would somebody be here if this is the last place in the world they want to be? Have you, met, have you met children before who constantly ask, why do we have to go to church? Do, do your kids ask you that? Are we going to church tomorrow morning? Listen, there, there should be a lot of questions that you answer for your kids, but you shouldn't ever have to answer that question, right? The answer should always be yes. You can always know we're going to church tomorrow morning, Sunday morning. We're going to go be with God's people. I don't know why you're here this morning. I don't know what your disposition is this morning, what your attitude is. But I do not believe in accidents, and I do not believe that you are here by accident. I believe the Lord has a word that he wants for you to hear this morning from his word. And I pray that it's going to be an encouragement to you. It's good to see you this morning. As, as Jeremy said, we are starting the book of Second Peter today. I don't know how familiar you are with Peter, but it's a great morning to be here. It's a great morning to be visiting because we're starting a new series. We just finished the book of Acts last week, and we're starting the letter of Peter, the second letter of Peter, here this morning. So if you would, be so kind as to turn to Second Peter this morning, 2 Peter chapter 1, and as Jeremy said again, we are memorizing this chapter over the summer. Well, why are we doing that? Because it's extremely important for God's people to know God's word and to have God's word in their hearts. And all of us need that encouragement to memorize, don't we? And it's also because the summer is hectic, and there are people that like to camp like every other week in the summer. And so as a church, we thought it would be a good idea. We did this last summer with Ephesians chapter 1 and this summer with 2 Peter chapter 1. We thought it would be good to memorize a chapter of Scripture together so that no matter where you are, whether you're vacationing or whether uh, you have to go visit family or whatever it is, you can still memorize the same passage with us throughout the summer. And at the end of the summer, we will... Uh, we will have invested our time wisely by putting God's word and treasuring God's word in our hearts. So 2 Peter chapter 1, we're going to be memorizing this this summer. I want to encourage you to do that. Thank you for whoever printed off the, the, the chapter there and left it there for you on the welcome table. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. We do this every Sunday. We want to stand in honor and respect for God's word. 2 Peter chapter 1. Starting in verse 1, and I will read the entire chapter. We're going to be doing this every week. Hopefully, after a few weeks, you can mouth along without even looking. Second Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Read along as I read out loud. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ... To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities 
is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I don't know how familiar you are with the book of Second Peter. I have found that it is not a book that most Christians are familiar with, sadly. It has a lot in common with the little letter of Jude. I don't know how familiar you are with Jude. The second chapter especially has much in similarity with Jude. The book of Peter, Second Peter is a letter written right before Peter dies. Probably mid to late 60s AD, Peter's going to be martyred at the hands of Emperor Nero. And right before he dies, he knows his death is coming. He says so there in verse 14. We just read it. Says the putting off, I know the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. I know the end of my life is coming. But he wants to write this letter to these Christians. He has some things he, he wants, he is urgent in getting across to them, some, some things he wants them to remember. And he knows they know these things already. Have you ever have you ever have you ever had truth given to you that you already know and yet you need to hear it again. That's exactly what Peter's doing. Saying, I know you know this, but until I put off this body, I, I want to make sure that you remember these things, and then after I put off this body, that you continue remembering these things. These, these things are very important for your growth. He is urgent. This, this letter is also intense. Everybody tells me I'm intense. Some, some people think I'm too intense. I think intensity is okay. We're talking about the Word of God. We're talking about the things of God. This is extremely important. There's nothing more important in the world than this. And Peter is intense. Peter wants them, he wants them to finish the race. He wants them to make it all the way to the end. And he is reminding them of things that they, they already know, they've already heard, but he, he wants them to remember. After he's gone, he wants them to remember these things. And, and he gives us some of his motivation when he tells us in chapter 2 that there are false prophets coming, false teachers coming. That's what chapter 2 is about. In chapter 2... So chapter 1 is him reminding us of some things. Chapter 2, he says, I, I want to do this now because there are false teachers coming. It's dangerous. There are people who will come in to the church and they will pervert the truth. He even describes who these people are. 
He says they're licentious people, sexually immoral people, people who seek to only please themselves. And, this gets into chapter 3, they deny the promises of God. They deny the second coming. You see, Jesus, when he departed, he promised that he would come again. If you will, turn over to chapter 3. I'm giving you just a brief summary of, of the book before we dive into our particular passage this morning. Look at the end of chapter 3. This is where he's talking about the end of all things, the dissolving of the very heavens and earth. Look at this. He says, verse 11, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Since everything is going to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in Lives of holiness and godliness. So we see one of the purposes for his writing. He wants them to remember and be reminded of some things that are extremely important. Why? So that they will go on to lives of holiness and godliness. He doesn't want them to be led astray by the false teachers who live sensually for themselves, pleasing themselves, and pervert the truth that Jesus indeed is coming back. And when Jesus comes back, all things are going to be exposed. Everything's going to be exposed. Did you know that? Jesus is coming back, and when Jesus comes back, everyone is going to be exposed. He says, because you're God's people, you should know this. And this should lead you to live lives of holiness and godliness. That's what he says. Go Look at what he says in verse 12 of chapter 3. Live lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So again, he's saying, cling to the promises. Remember the promises. And remember the implications of these promises. The promises of God come with implications for our lives. The promises of God come with implications for our lives. Because God has promised, therefore we should live in a particular way. And he says, because God has promised that he is coming, Jesus is coming, and that all things are going to be dissolved, we should live lives of holiness and godliness. And then, continue in chapter 3 there, I'm summing up the book here, final words. He says, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, the verse 14 of chapter 3, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish, and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. So he says, I'm I'm in league with Paul. Paul and Peter are in agreement, is what he's saying. There are some things he says about Paul that he writes that are hard to understand, which the ignorant, unstable, and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures, alluding again to those false teachers. But look at verse 17. He says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So again, summing up the book. He is warning these people of what's coming. He wants to remind them He wants to warn them. He wants to exhort them. He wants to tell them that the promises of God are sure. Therefore, they are to be diligent and urgent in pursuing holiness and godliness. Because we are, in fact, after all, God's people. Did you know that God's people, getting a little ahead of myself here, but God's people are meant to look like God. Did you know that? God's people are meant to look like God. It matters how we live. It matters what we do. 
It matters because we are God's people. God's people are meant to look like him. And Peter wants to remind them. Peter writes his letter, informs it as an ancient letter. Ancient letters are different than our letters. When you write a letter, if, do you, does anybody write a letter anymore? No, we write emails, right? We write emails. I hate emails. I'm not going to get onto that. I, but by the way, don't email me or text me if you have something important to say to me. Call me. Call, did you know you have a phone that actually works kind of like a phone does? You can call people on it and talk to them, actually hear their voice. It'd be great if you called me. He writes a letter here. And it's unlike the letters we write. When we write a letter, we start by addressing the letter. Dear Mom. We start with who we're addressing it to. And and we usually don't give a whole lot of description. We just say, Dear Mom. My mom's here today, by the way, so um, I'm using that because I love her and I don't write her letters. So if I, if I wrote you a letter, mom, that's how I would write. I would say, dear, dear mom, the one to whom I owe my whole life. You know, that's not how we start letters, right? Dear mom. And we finish, we, we start with who it's addressed to, and then we write the body of the letter and we finish with who's sending it. Dear, dear, son, dear mom, I miss you, your son, your great and grateful and wonderful son. Right, mom? That's right. But that's not how an ancient letter is structured. An ancient letter begins with the author who's writing it. And then the author right away tells you who he's writing to. And this comes often with some description. It's interesting. And then in an ancient letter, there's always some type of greeting that's given. So it starts with the author and then the recipients and then some type of greeting. A New Testament letter is a bit different in that the greetings are not just... You, usually in an ancient letter, you would, you would say something about their health and wanting them to be, you know, healthy. I hope you're well. We do the same thing, right? Hey, how are you doing today? I hope you're well. In an ancient letter, you would say something about their health, ho- hoping that they're doing well, hoping that their life is going okay. But in a New Testament letter... It is often in this greeting that you find some information which is really intentional and purposeful. It's not a throwaway. We're going to focus on the opening of this letter this morning. And you go, okay. Because because this is the, the part of the letter everybody skips, right? When you're reading, let's be honest, when you're reading the Bible and you read read the letter, you you read Simeon Peter, servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Okay, that's good. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Okay, Uh, all right. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Uh, That's great. Let's get to the good stuff. But a New Testament letter, as I've just said, is more intentional than that. And what you will find is you you will discover clues... You, you will discover information in the author and recipient and greeting that's really important for understanding the book. And this is the case with Second Peter. We start with the description that Peter gives himself, the description of the writer and author. Look at it there, verse 1, Second Peter Chapter 1, verse 1. Simeon Peter. That's interesting. 
He calls himself Simeon. This is his Hebrew name. Simeon Peter. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Again, most of us skip by that, thinking nothing of it, just thinking, well, this is the way they talked. Let's get on to the things that really apply to me. Have you ever had that issue, maybe when you're reading the Bible, thinking, well, what is it that really matters for me in my life? Is there anything here in verse 1? Surely not. Surely there's nothing here in this very first verse that would apply to my life. But I think otherwise. I think there's something here for us that's of immense value and implication for our life. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Why does he describe himself in this way? Why does Peter describe himself in this way? Stop and ask yourself that question. Why does, why does he use these terms to describe himself? A servant. The word servant here is the word doulos. Doulos can be translated slave or bond servant, or as it is here, servant. The problem is when we read the word servant, right, we have, we have the idea of someone who serves tables or is a servant-hearted person. The Bible has a word for that. A deacon, someone who is a servant of others. That's not, that's not the word Peter uses here. Peter uses the word doulos, which actually has, has an idea of slave or a bondservant. Or someone who is contracted to work for another. Now, when we think of the word slave, which I think would be a fitting translation for this. When we think of the word slave, what do we think of? We think of 19th century southern slavery, don't we? Which is repugnant and sinful and horrible. This is not the idea of slave here. Not the idea. So, so on one hand, we have this 19th century idea of slavery, or we have this kind of different idea of, of a willing service and a giving of oneself to another to serve them. No, what Peter is saying is that he is indeed the slave of Jesus Christ. He is the bondservant, if you will. He has been called to a particular position as a servant of Jesus. This is very, is very similar to an Old Testament way of talking about God's leaders. You remember in the Old Testament when it talks about Moses or Abraham, it talks about them in, in, in a way as servants. They, they are the servants of God. They have been given a particular place. They have been given a particular mission. God has brought them to himself for a particular mission to lead his people. You see that here. I think this is how Peter and Paul use it. He is a servant of Jesus Christ. His will is to do the will of his master. His desire is to please the one he serves. He belongs to Jesus. And he has been given a particular role for God's people. It does communicate a humility. I do, I do think here with servant and apostle, you have a really great model of what a servant leader should be. What, was it Jesus a servant leader? Is there any greater leader than Jesus himself? Jesus is the leader of his people. He is the head of the church. There is no one who has a higher rank than Jesus. And yet he came and served. A humility with leadership. 
I believe Jesus imprinted himself in this servant leadership upon his apostles. This is what he wanted his apostles to look like. Servant leaders. So it does communicate a humility. It does communicate a wholehearted giving of oneself to a master to serve and do the will of his master. But, but I want you to, to think of this. He says he's a servant of Jesus Christ. A servant of Jesus Christ. It's one thing to say he's a slave, but consider who he is a slave of. He's a servant. He's a slave to Jesus Christ. If I told you that I was an administrative assistant, you might say, that's nice. By the way, we're looking for an administrative assistant. If anybody's interested, we have a position to fill. If I told you I was an administrative assistant, you might, you might think, oh, that means he's pretty organized. That's nice. He's an assistant for somebody somewhere. But what if I told you I was the administrative assistant for the President of the United States? All of a sudden, my position becomes a little bit more impressive, doesn't it? Now you go, whoa, why? Because of who you are attached to. And what Peter says here is he is a slave. He is a servant of Jesus Christ. Not just a servant, but also an apostle. An apostle is a word that can mean just to be sent by someone. Again, I don't think this is how Peter is using it. I think he's using it in a technical sense. He's he's using it in reference to those few who were appointed by Jesus to be his apostles. Do you remember what was necessary to be an apostle? You had to actually witness. You had to see Jesus in his life. You had to see Jesus and be an eyewitness of his death. You had to see Jesus and be an eyewitness of his resurrection. And you were commissioned as an apostle to be the leader of his people. This is not for everyone. Peter references himself as a servant, a slave of Jesus Christ, and an apostle. Here's what Peter is saying. He is... Someone who holds a unique position for the sake of God's people. He he is not you and me. As I said, Jesus has imprinted his his leadership upon the apostles. They have taken on the Christ life. And it serves as a great model for us, how we are to live. And yet there's something deeper here. Why does Peter describe himself this way as he begins the letter? And here's why. And here's, here's what it means for us. Peter, Peter is pointing to his position as a servant, as a slave of Jesus Christ, and an apostle, an appointed apostle of Jesus Christ. Why? Because what Peter writes here in 2 Peter is authoritative and trustworthy. It's authoritative and trustworthy. What Peter writes to God's people here is what Jesus himself wants written. See, that kind of raises the level of significance here as we read the Bible, doesn't it? Second Peter, this letter is both trustworthy and authoritative. It's what Jesus wants written. Peter's doing the will of his master. He's the one sent to give this revelation to God's people. 
in the name of Jesus. What Peter writes here is, is, is of immeasurable importance for us as God's people. Now there will be many who scoff at his word. Which again is why I think Peter's describing himself this way because chapter 2 is coming. There are prophets and false teachers that are coming, false prophets and false teachers that are coming who will doubt what God has said. And he's saying, you can trust in what I communicate to you because I am a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. There are many who come that scoff at his word and his promises and there are many who will claim to hold the truth, but they hold the truth in vain. They will claim to hold the truth, but it does not produce godliness in their life. He says there are many outside and inside who will oppose this word, but I want you to know right off the bat as he's writing this, this is Simeon Peter writing to you, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. You can trust what I'm writing to you. It is authoritative. This is what Jesus wants written. This is what you need to remember. Can I just ask you very quickly before we move on? And I I think all of us need to ask ourselves this question continually. Where are we getting our information from? Where are we getting our knowledge from? What do we hold in our lives as authoritative knowledge? As trustworthy knowledge? Where do we go when we want the answers? I I think all of us can be honest and say that often we will turn to man's wisdom... Or to man's philosophy and not to God's word. God's word is not where we turn when we want knowledge and information. It is not what we trust as authoritative. What is your source of knowledge? New knowledge. New knowledge is not synonymous with better knowledge. Did did you know the best knowledge? The best knowledge is the old knowledge. This is profound. The knowledge that you and I need is found in the same place where it has always been found for God's people. The knowledge that you need for life for eternal life, the knowledge that you need for godliness, the knowledge you need for your life is not found any other place. I mean, would that make any sense? Sometimes I think God's people think this. They just fall into this trap. Well, the Bible's outdated. The Bible's a little old. We need to update it a little bit. It doesn't understand our culture. No, God's people have always, always lived their lives by God's word. This is the knowledge we need. And it is trustworthy and it is authoritative. This is what Peter says. He says, I'm a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ and what I say you need to listen to. But then he says something staggering. This leads to the second part. The recipients. Look what he says about the recipients. Simeon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, To those, look how he describes those that he's writing to. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's quite a bit happening in this little little half of the, the verse. To those, look how he describes it. Those who have obtained, the word obtained here, means to be allotted or apportioned. It's connected to this idea of casting lots and the lot falling to someone and then someone being given an inheritance based on the falling out of the lots. The book of Joshua. Remember the book of Joshua when they're handing out pieces of the land? 
They're, they're giving an allotment or given an allotment and a portion, a portion in the inheritance of God and the land. This is the idea. The apostles were given a portion. This is what's said of Judas in Acts chapter 1. He was apportioned a part in this ministry, the apostolic ministry. And he lost it because of his sin. He says, you have obtained, this is, this is the idea, you have been a, apportioned, you have been allotted, you have been given. You've been given. Now, the English word obtained doesn't sound that way, right? Obtained sounds like something we've done, we've accomplished, we've obtained something. We've gotten something by our own work. That's not what the word means. Here it is, you have received, you've been given something. It says, to those who've been given something. What have they been given? Look at what it says. What, what have they been given? To those who have been given a faith of equal standing with ours. A faith of equal standing with ours. Now, there's some debate about who the ours is. Who, who's Peter talking about? A, a faith of equal standing with ours. Maybe he's talking because he calls himself Simeon. He, he uses his Hebrew name. Maybe he's talking about the Jewish people. And he's writing to Gentiles. You as the Gentiles have been given a faith of equal standing with ours. We are the same without distinction. Jew and Gentile coming to God on the same level. I think that's absolutely possible. Absolutely possible. We talked a lot about that in the book of Acts. Maybe, and I think maybe even a, a little bit more likely, he's talking about the fact that those who he's writing to, they have the same faith that's been given to them that even the apostles have. Simeon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Wow. So, so he just, he says he's a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, putting himself in a unique position to be listened to as authoritative and trustworthy. And now he says, you all have the same faith that I have. You've been given the same faith that I've been given. You've been given the same faith. Of equal standing. Some of your translations We'll use the word precious, talking about the value of this faith. The idea, though, I think is more of citizenship. You have been given equal citizenship, equal standing with ours. So whether it's talking about being equal, as the Gentiles being equal with the Jews in their faith, or it's the apostles and all believers of all time, being equal to the apostles even with the faith that they've been given. Either way, it's emphasizing the equal standing of all believers. All of us have been given the same portion. You know what this means by implication for us? Very quickly. This means in the household of faith, there is no room for haughtiness. There is no room for pride. In the household of faith, there is no room for anyone to elevate themselves for any reason over another. It does not matter, no matter how much money you make. It does not matter how much education you have. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. It doesn't matter what title you hold. And this is so important for all of us to get. Did you know there's not a more, more important person in the church than another? There's not some people who are important than others who aren't that important. So, some people think because I'm the guy that stands up here most Sundays that I'm the most important guy in the church. Nothing could be further from the truth. People tell me that all the time. I, thank, thank you for preaching this morning. I'm like, well, what good would that be if you weren't here? Pe people are running VBSs this week and, and in a couple of weeks, right? Do you think I'm doing that? 
I'm not organizing any of that. Who do you think set up the chairs this morning? Who do you think was here to set up the coffee for you this morning? I mean, on and on and on and on and on we could go. We have been given different offices. We've been given different gifts. But all of equal standing. There's no place for haughtiness in the household of God. And this is important for so many of you to hear. There are no second-class citizens in the faith. There are no second-class citizens. Some of us here can't get over this comparison with other people. I wish I had what they had. I wish I knew what they knew. I wish I had the gift that they've been given. No, there's, there are no second-class citizens in the faith. He writes to those who've obtained, been apportioned, been given a faith of equal standing with ours. We haven't talked about this very quickly. What does he mean, the faith? What, what does it mean that they've been given the faith or a faith of equal standing. What is this faith referring to? Some, in fact, many scholars think this is a a set of doctrine, a set of beliefs. So, So what he's saying, he's saying, you've been given the same set of beliefs that we were given. Jesus gave to us the truth And now we give this to you. And you have the same truth that we have. I think that's definitely a possibility. It fits. Others will say, no, it's not talking about the doctrine that's been transmitted or or the truth that's been handed down. This is talking more of uh, the, the personal subjective side of faith. The ability, if you will, to believe. I think it's kind of hinting at both. It kind of is an all-encompassing term. The faith of equal standing with ours. So, so he says, you've been given, you've received a faith of equal standing with ours. A belief, or the belief, the faith in the truth about who Jesus is. Remember we talked about conversion? Conversion is the act of God. Conversion is the act of God whereby he confronts the sinner with the truth of who Jesus is. He opens their eyes and they see for the first time the truth of who Jesus is. And then they respond with repentance and faith. How can we do that? It is a gift of God. This is why the writers over and over again talk about it as a gift of grace. You cannot see the truth of who Jesus is without God revealing it to you. You cannot understand the truth, the doctrine that you need to understand unless God revealed it to you. And here's the the amazing thing. You cannot believe unless he gives you the gift of belief. This is why we pray for our children all the time. God, give them the gift of repentance and faith. I can't force it on them. I can't make them believe. But God, you can. You can. It's not less than propositional truth. Right? We, we have to agree on the, the correct things, the true things about who Jesus is. We don't get to just make up what we want to about Jesus. There is an embodiment. There, there is an actual set of truths that we have to uh, understand and believe. But that ability to believe is given to us by God. So he says, to those who have obtained, you've been given, you've received a faith of equal standing with ours. And then look at, look at the, the means here. You've been given 
A faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. This is pregnant with truth. This is so full of truth here. What does he mean by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ? Very quickly, this phrase, the righteousness of God, is an Old Testament term that's, that's meant to communicate God's salvation of his people. The righteousness of God is parallel with the salvation of his people. Why is that term used? Because the salvation of his people demands judgment upon the wicked. So so follow the, the understanding here. God's righteousness is displayed... It is demonstrated in the salvation of his people because the salvation of his people demands the judgment of the wicked. You want to know that God's righteous? Look to the judgment that he pours out on the wicked. You will know the righteousness of God. And the judgment that he pours out upon the wicked means the salvation of his people. This is part of the hope of the Old Testament God is going to send his messianic king, and his messianic king is going to save his people. How? By judging the wicked, rescuing his people by righteousness, right? The problem, though, is that Romans 3, this is what Paul tells us in Romans 3, there is none righteous, no, not one. There are none that are righteous, and, and so, this is amazing. In Romans 3, the righteousness of God is revealed, which you would think means the judgment of the wicked and the salvation of his righteous ones, the, the people of God. But, but guess what? He can't save because no one is righteous. No one can be saved by their own righteousness because no one is righteous. So Romans 3 tells us that he actually demonstrates his righteousness, his justice, by putting forth Jesus. Jesus becomes the propitiation for sin. The the wrath of God is poured out on Jesus. So how does God demonstrate his righteousness? Get this, get this. How does God demonstrate his righteousness? How does God demonstrate that he indeed is righteous? What is he going to do about sin? How's he going to take care of all these wicked people in the world? Right? There's none righteous. If God is going to pour out his wrath on the wicked, he pours it out on all of us. But God demonstrated his righteousness in that he put forth his son, Jesus. Jesus then took the wrath of God against the wicked people. He took the wrath of God that was meant towards sinners. Jesus took that wrath and that judgment. And now, God can save those, not who are found in their own righteousness, but those who are found in Jesus and the work of Jesus. His righteousness. Jesus has taken the sin of his people and endured their wrath and judgment, and he has given his people his own righteousness so that God can indeed be righteous, saving the sinner by the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. This phrase then sums up the initiative and provision of God for the salvation of his people. God initiates this work of salvation and he provides what is needed to save his people. It's all by his righteousness. We have obtained, we have received a faith of equal standing with even the apostles, with every member of God's people throughout time. We have received a faith of equal standing with the apostles by the righteousness of God our Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is the astounding thing. Look at it at the end. I don't have time to unpack it, but look at it at the end of that little verse. Notice who it says, who Peter says is God. 
the, the construction of the grammar here makes it clear that God is none other than Jesus himself. We have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is both God who initiates and provides salvation for his people. He, he works with the Father as the Father has a plan to save his people. And he is the Savior. He is the one who executes the plan. Jesus is God and Savior. This is just covered. This whole book is covered with the supremacy of Jesus Christ. His worth his place. And then lastly, I want you to see, very quickly, I want you to see Peter's prayer for these people. So he says, Simeon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. My word is trustworthy and authoritative. This is what Jesus himself wants written. To those who've obtained, they've received a faith equal with ours by the righteousness of God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Look at his prayer. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Savior or Jesus our Lord. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. As I said earlier, this is not a throwaway. Every letter kind of has this greeting, grace and peace, grace and peace, grace and peace. But Peter adds in some content here. Look at it. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. He wants them to have an abundance of grace and peace. He wants them to be multiplied in grace. Doesn't that sound, doesn't that sound good? Did you know that you can grow in grace? Did you know that you can grow in peace? Sounds good, doesn't it? But then he gives us the how. May grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge or in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. I want you to see three three things here about this knowledge, this knowledge of God. And we're going we're gonna to end with this. I have some more, but we're going to be done with this in the next few minutes, okay? I want you to see three things about the knowledge of God here. Number one, what Peter's telling us here is that the knowledge of God, and the implication of this is that the knowledge of God is possible. The knowledge of God is possible. Did you know this morning, again, I, I said, I don't know why you're here. I don't know what brought you here. You might be a young person who doesn't want to be here. You might, you might be a husband or wife who doesn't want to be here. I don't, I don't know why you're here. And I'm not thinking of anybody particularly. I, I don't have inside information. I don't know why you're here, and I don't, I don't know what brought you here, but I want you to know this. You can know God. You sit and just think about that for a second. You can know God. It's possible. God has made himself known. It's possible to know God. But this knowledge of God, which is possible, is also particular There are some people who will say, there are lots of ways to know God. There are lots of ways to know God. There's there's lots of different avenues to know God. You find your own way. Find the way that suits you the best. There are lots of ways to know God. No, there are not lots of ways to know God. Did you know the only way, the only way to know God is through the revelation that he himself has given to us. Even Adam and Eve in their Edenic state before the fall, they could not know God unless God gave them 
the knowledge or the revelation of himself. It's possible to know God, but this knowledge can only be found in the knowledge that God himself has given, the revelation that God himself has given. So how has God made himself known? This is a very important question. It's basic. Your kids need to know this. You need to be talking about this, but it's also profound. There are two ways, right? Two ways that God has revealed himself. First, God has revealed himself generally. Generally. We, we say this is general revelation. And it, it, it means what it sounds like, right? God has revealed himself generally in all that he has made. In all of creation, you can see truth about God. The heavens declare the glory of God. Right? The, the mountains and the seas, they show you the power of God. We see in everything that he has made who God is. And th- this, is, this is where we get really tripped up. You can actually look at yourself and look at your life and look at other people and see God displayed. Because God has made us. We are part of that general revelation. Did you know that? So you can look at people and you see that they all look a certain way similar ways and this is shouting to us that there's a creator you can look at what men produce art and literature and you can actually see truths about god and what he has given this is called general revelation and it is abundant and it is everywhere But general revelation, this is very important. General revelation is not enough to save. You can see truths about God and everything he's made, but that's not enough to save. That knowledge is not salvific. So God has also revealed himself in a particular way. He's revealed himself generally to everyone, everywhere, but he's also revealed himself particularly, specifically. We call this specific revelation. Specific revelation is found in, in only a couple of places. Where is specific revelation? Where has God made himself known? God has made himself known in his word. This is kind of coming full circle. That's why it's important that Peter, when he writes, talks about his position as a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Because I want to know, is this authoritative word that I can know God through? Is this, is this word where I can find true saving knowledge of God? We find saving knowledge of God in his word. But what is it that his word explains to us? What is it that his word reveals to us? His word reveals to us his son, Jesus Christ. God has revealed himself specifically in his word and in his son. His son is where we see God perfectly explained, perfectly displayed. Knowing God is possible Knowing God is particular. You you can't find your way to God any way that you want. It can only come through his word as it reveals Jesus Christ. But thirdly, knowledge of God is possible. Knowledge of God is particular. But knowledge of God, true knowledge of God is also productive. And I want you to see this. Peter Peter prays for these people. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Do you see the heart he has for these people? He wants grace and peace be multiplied to them. I want you to have an abundance of grace. I want you to have an abundance of peace. I want grace and peace to be multiplied to you. And the way that's going to happen is in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Grace and mercy comes through knowledge. Sometimes we believe that 
the head and the heart are two different things. Peter doesn't see them as two different things. Do you see that? He doesn't see them as two different things. He says, you want grace for your life? You want peace? You, do you want your life to be characterized by the peace that all of God's people should be characterized by? I don't know a heart in here that doesn't go, yes, I want grace for my life. Oh, I need grace. I need grace as I'm, I'm leading this family. I need grace as I'm parenting these children. I need grace as I'm working through these relational struggles. I need grace for today. I need grace. I need peace. I need to be characterized by peace. I want the peace that God provides. How can I get that? So for Peter, he, he, he puts that out there. Grace and peace be multiplied. How? Through the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Sometimes people think that learning or that growing in what we know is counterproductive to the heart. And that is not the case. In fact, if you want grace and peace, you must You must be diligent, urgent in pursuing the knowledge of God through how he has revealed himself, his particular revelation. Knowing God is possible. Knowing God is particular. Knowing God is productive. And let me me just say this. I know a lot of people that read a lot of theology books Read a lot of theology, which is good. This is good for us. But there's a problem if our theology and our deep theology doesn't change our hearts. If, if the knowledge that you possess isn't producing gracious responses, if, if the knowledge you possess isn't producing grace in your life, If the knowledge that you possess isn't creating peace and characterizing your life by peace, if the knowledge you possess isn't creating and producing, as he's going to get into next week, if it's not producing godliness, if the knowledge you possess isn't producing grace and peace and godliness, you're not knowing God through all the knowledge that you possess. Because to know God and to know his son, Jesus Christ, through how he has revealed himself, transforms us, gives us grace and peace and motivates us to godliness. Do do you see that? When someone, and again, I'm getting into next week a little bit, when someone doesn't want to be godly in their life, you know what I assume? They're not seeing God because seeing God produces a desire to be godly. I want to be like God. When someone's not gracious, when someone's not characterized by peace, it means that they're, they're not seeing clearly. Peter wants them to see clearly. He's going to get into that. And this work to see clearly is indeed a work. It requires effort. It requires work. It requires diligence. And that's what he's going to call us to in chapter 1 of 2 Peter. We're looking forward to going through this chapter with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for its trustworthiness. It is authoritative. It is trustworthy. It is all we need for life, for eternal life. It is all we need for godliness. It is all we need to get to where you want us to go. It is all we need. Forgive us for trusting in other sources of knowledge. Forgive us for thinking little of your word or casting it aside for something more immediate, for something that seems to satisfy a need. 
And yet, it does not truly cause us to know you. It doesn't transform us. We, we are so quick to grab on to things we hear, things we read. Lord, forgive us for doubting the sufficiency of your word. I pray for those here who do not know you. Maybe they know a lot about you. God, you know who they are. They know a lot about you, but they do not truly know you. They do not have that saving faith. They have not seen the truth of who Jesus is, which has led them to true repentance and faith. I pray that you would give them the gift of repentance and faith, even today. And that they would see that knowing you is possible. But they must come only by the knowledge you have given us in your word and in your son. He is the only way. And I pray that you would take your word in all of us who are your people and produce in us for life this grace and peace and godliness that our life would be characterized by the fruitfulness the fruitfulness of truly knowing you and knowing your son Jesus we pray all of this for your glory and for your name's sake amen